Hello, I'm Angus Scott, and this is The Debrief. Thanks for finding us again. The season is up and running, but the transfer window remains open. Still so much to talk about between now and the beginning of September. And don't forget, Fabrizio Romano will be with us before too long. So stand by for the transfer guru and all the latest news. My sidekick, the travelling nomad, Ben Jacobs, is with me again. (laughs) He's a little nearer home and has plenty of stories from Saudi. They let you leave, Ben. Yes, my America-Saudi trip is over. I'm back at Stansted Airport in London. And look, they even sent me a little Neymar 10 Al Nasser shirt to wear as well. Not that it's the only Saudi club that I'm following, but I was at the Neymar unveiling and it was crazy, really. 60,000 Al Nasser fans. But yes, back in London and looking forward to talking about Arsenal. I hope Neymar has got a shirt that fits. Um, and today we He's actually got Arsenal. one with my name on the back of it. We swapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, as Ben says, today we do focus on Arsenal and ask the simple question, is this Arsenal's year? A little later, we'll catch up with the Channel 4 News sports reporter Jordan Jarrett-Brian with his take on the Arsenal season as a journalist and a fan. And I'm pleased to say that we also have friend of the show, James Benj, the CBS football correspondent who's been across most things at Arsenal from his London base with us and James is the only person with a better looking microphone than me. James. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's my pride and joy. It's, 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 the, it's the defining thing of my life at the moment, my microphone. <laughs> It's very, very good. Uh, So congratulations on that. And thanks for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it. Um, Simple question, Ben, to you. Is this Arsenal's year? How how much do you think they've learned from last year and this might be their year? Simple question with an incredibly complicated answer. I think that's the best way of putting it. And I suppose in asking the question about Arsenal, we have to decide what our perspective is. And I'll be interested to see what James thinks, because either... Last season was their level. They wobbled. They didn't win the Premier League. And therefore, the expectation is that this year is a challenge for the title. And that's the gauge of success. Or you could start with the perspective, which I think I'm more leaning towards, which is that Arsenal surpassed themselves last season. And although the back end wobble was disappointing and gleaned all of the focus overall quite clearly if you'd have said to Mikel Arteta at the beginning of the season you'd push Manchester City close you'd comfortably make Champions League football that would have been deemed to be progress as far as the project is concerned so I look at Arsenal and think to myself if they are a near automatic qualifier for Champions League football in the sense that you know they're going to get 75 plus points and you feel like their project is going to get them into the Champions League season on season on season, which is kind of what Chelsea have been doing apart from last season and did so regularly in a good season, a trophy and a bad season, comfortably Champions League football. If that becomes Arsenal, it's progress, which takes us back to kind of Arsene Wenger, who, when he said top four was an achievement, got derided. But modern football now tells us that qualifying for the Champions League is a big deal. But the caveat to all of that, James, which is why it's so complicated, is they've spent so much money. And when you look at Timber when fit, Havertz, Rice, plus last season, plus the fact that there is stability, plus the fact that there are these contract renewals tying all of these young players to the football club. Why shouldn't Arsenal be Premier League contenders? So I think that this year for Arsenal should have Champions League football. I don't think that they're going to win the Premier League, but 
it just feels, James, like a very difficult question to answer. And as I said a moment ago, if you view last season as a wobble, Arsenal need to bounce back. If you view last season as Arsenal just qualifying for the Champions League, they just need to stabilise. Yeah, I, I suppose going back to the, the original question as well, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I, I find it's quite a, an easy question to answer. Um, it's probably not Arsenal's year because Manchester City still exists. Um, anyway, that's and... the debrief. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's so strange. You know, I've spent most of my life covering, talk, almost my career talk, covering and talking about Arsenal. Um, and yet, you know, this, after the most exciting season they've ever had, or they've had, sorry, they've had while I've been covering them and they've had in, in a decade, you find yourself talking about Manchester City. I imagine it's a very similar experience to my colleagues who covered Liverpool uh, for several years and, and, and who knows, maybe again this season, where perhaps all you can actually do, you know, set against Pep Guardiola's behemoth that can go and win a treble and is probably favourite in every competition it's in next season, this season and next season, perhaps all you can do is just position yourself so that if everything goes wrong, you're the team that can, can slip in. And I think following this summer, Arsenal will probably believe that they are that club. Um, they have plugged gaps in the squad. It was a squad that looked really reliant on the fitness of Thomas Partey, who was a player that, that couldn't give them 38 high-quality Premier League games. Sorted. Declan Rice may well be an immediate upgrade. He's certainly an upgrade in the long term. Um, Kai Havertz as well gives them options in midfield. Um, it would be brilliant if Urien Timber was not about to miss pretty much the whole season. I thought he was fantastic in, in a very small number of minutes. But look, you know, Arsenal had a probably slightly better season than their underlying data suggested they should have. But you can sort of set that against the likelihood that at least some of Saka, Erdegaard, Martinelli, um, the young guys in Saliba uh, all have another level up to go. So... I think what they probably will feel they've done is position themselves as England's second best team and good things can happen to England's second best team, not just in the Premier League, but in the Champions League as well. And um, it's it's very frustrating, I'm sure, for Arsenal fans. I'm sure they can share their, their sorrows with Liverpool fans that maybe sometimes there's nothing you can do. If City are just in the mood, they'll go and win the league. But if anything goes wrong, Arsenal are there. Do you think it's a mental thing then that you've got to reposition the Arsenal fans' mindset that they've, they've been out of it for a time? They were looking back at the glory days of Arsene Wenger when he'd say top four is is a result. That's, that, that's a brilliant um, finish. And then suddenly, last season, they thought they actually might win the title. So that maybe the mindset of the Arsenal fan is now, hang on, we can win this title. We're actually... They might have overachieved and what they need to be looking at is the Arsene Wenger mindset again of going top four, that's fine. We're happy. And if we can push for the title and push City, who are exceptional at the moment, then that's even better. I suppose it depends on, you know, I I, I don't think top four is enough. It's sufficient. But I think sort of, you know, the way Arsene Wenger did it was an awful lot of sort of dramatic late conclusions to the season, battling with Tottenham until the 37th, 38th game of the season. And that would be a, a very disappointing season for Arsenal, um, particularly if you coupled it with their sort of bog-standard exit at the round of 16 to a Barcelona or a Bayern Munich. I think what they have to prove is they can compete at the very, very highest level. And of course, because it's not back yet, we're not really talking about Arsenal in Champions League terms. 
But if you're the second best team in England, which Arsenal were last season, and I think probably, we would probably all agree if you look across the squads, they probably are the second best this. Well, that's a team that should be pushing for the semi-finals of the Champions League, maybe further. And, you know, that is very much the white whale for Arsene Wenger and Arsenal Football Club as a whole. Um, it's natural to view it as sort of, when are you going to win the title again? It's been 20 years since the Invincibles. Um, but that Champions League one is the one I think may actually be more attainable for Arsenal. You just need a, a good draw, a good run of form at the, at the right moment. And then you find yourself in the final at Wembley Stadium. Although Arsenal, Wembley Stadium, Champions League, you guys will remember that doesn't tend to go very well for them. Yeah. Uh, ben, how will you look at the transfer dealings that Arsenal have made during this window? Obviously, the, the headline is Declan Rice coming in, um, which now seems to be the... the the usual sort of price for a, a midfielder, although I know some fans think he's not necessarily the answer. Um, you also look at Timbo, as we know, who's out. And then the strange one of, of Kai Havertz coming, that Mikel Arteta must feel there is still a very decent footballer in there, which Chelsea didn't see. And we know Ch Chelsea was you know, a bit of a problem case last year. So it's not a surprise that he could move to another club like Arsenal across London, still be happy in London, but with a much more settled squad and then get therefore get a, a better performance out of him. I think as well with Havertz, it's a positional change. So Chelsea never really understood where to play him and he ended up being the focal point in their attack and Chelsea weren't scoring goals. So Havertz was much maligned. Now I think he'll have a lot more freedom. He's versatile. He can play behind Gabriel Jesus in an ideal Arsenal lineup. And in addition to that, in game management, can move into different positions as well. And I think the Arteta factor was a big part in him choosing to make that move. It's interesting as well because Arsenal did, as you say, spend relatively big money. My understanding is that the overall Havertz package can rise to something almost close to 70 million if all of the add-ons are paid. And as a result, Arsenal chose to be quite bullish there. They chose to put their money down on the table. The same with Declan Rice as well. Manchester City's bid, even though it was a bit underwhelming in the end, was a factor in that. But this has been a very un-Arsenal-like window in the sense we associate Arsenal with making multiple bids, being very methodical, being very disciplined. It was why, for example, they ended up walking away from Mikhailo Mudrik. Chelsea got that player. And then what did they do? They brought in Leandro Trossard, who I thought was very effective. And that was value too. And he's still obviously a player that Arsenal value as far as this season is concerned. So sometimes the window just works in mysterious ways. But I think that Arteta may get the best out of Havertz. I think Declan Rice is the answer. That's just my personal opinion. He has really improved his attack-minded qualities in the last few seasons. So he's not only a central midfielder or a defensive midfielder. He offers a bit of everything now. He gets box to box. He can be a threat from set pieces. There's that leadership quality. And the fact that his progressive passing has come on leaps and bounds in the last 18 months or two years. So Arsenal have someone that can really connect in the centre of the park. And when you've got that string puller, everyone around benefits. And that's where you start looking at your Martinelli's and your Saka's and thinking Arsenal are going to have probably more balance than any other side that I can think of when everybody's fit in the Premier League. And then it's unfortunate about Timber. But the other one that's interesting, of course, is David Rea coming into who played every game, I 
believe for Brentford last season. And now we see whether or not he becomes the number one. Ramsdale holds on to the number one because he signed a new contract recently as well. And this is Arteta's thinking. He said very recently that there's, quote, no number ones in any position, which is a strange thing to say in some ways. But it also shows you that Arsenal have got depth and that's what you need to not only compete with Manchester City, but go far in the Champions League as well. And this is why I find it harder than you, James, to answer this question, because if Arsenal hadn't spent so big in this window, I would be saying stabilise, get Champions League football. Don't forget the season before the one where there was the wobble, but Arsenal excited. They blew it in back-to-back games against Tottenham and Newcastle, I think it was, and Spurs took the Champions League spot and Arsenal didn't. So we have to think further back than only last season but I'm skewed because I think they've had such a good window and they have spent so much in having that good window that they do need a return this season. Maybe you're right, Ben. Um, I, I, look, I look at the figures and think, yes, the Rice figures a lot and I suppose 70-odd for Havertz is a lot. Um, maybe maybe I'm looking at over 200 million and thinking, well, that's not much money these days, is it? But if it is, uh, it's, a, it's a whole lot more. Anyway, as as we've been saying, Arsenal have made some interesting and slightly controversial signings in the window. It looks like there is more work to be done, especially with Timber injured. So let's catch up with our transfer guru, Fabrizio Romano, to get the latest transfer news. Fab, thanks for joining us again. Uh, on Arsenal, we're really talking this week. So will Arsenal replace uh, Jurian Timber with anyone? They're discussing about it internally. Uh, they had different opportunities because, of course, agents, intermediaries, when they saw the situation of, of Timber, uh, started to offer players to Arsenal. So there are multiple options on the table. Uh, Arsenal, during last week, had some internal conversation and it will continue this week together with Nicola Arteta to decide whether they want to sign some player on the market or not. So this is not decided yet. And they also have to decide if they want to sign a new centre-back or full-back. So we know that Timber was covering both positions, so they have to decide what kind of player could be the, the right one. I think Arsenal will only act in case they find a good opportunity. This is always the idea at the club. And so I don't see them spending crazy money. I think they could do something smart, as they always do on the market. So this is going to be the internal discussion. Some players offered were uh, Ivan Fresneda, again, who was in the list of the club in January. But now, from what I'm told, uh, Sporting are the favourites to sign the talented right-back from Valladolid. So it's not that concrete with, uh, with Arsenal. Another player who's been discussed internally was Benjamin Pavard. But he's very close to joining Inter at the moment. And I don't think Arsenal were prepared to spend 30 million euros on a player who is out of contract next summer. So multiple players are uh, on the table as options. Let's see what's going to happen with uh, the internal discussion in the coming hours and days. Uh, and does Saudi Arabia still want Thomas Party? I think now is really, really unlikely. They tried at the end of July and beginning of August. Uh, they started around 25 million euros. Then the final approach was, was for something around 30, 35 million euros. And they were convinced in Saudi that this was going to be probably uh, the best fee to make it happen and to conclude the deal for Thomas Party. But from what I'm hearing at the beginning of August, the message from Arsenal is 35 is not enough, but even 45 is probably not enough. They want something around 50 to think about it uh, because the situation really changed. Thomas Party at the end of June was considered a player available on the market for a good fee on Arsenal side. Then when they restarted the, the pre-season and so with Mikel Arteta in direct contact with the player, they saw a very good Thomas Party, very good in the pre-season, very good approach and so they're very happy with him. They're not desperate to sell him I think there is a very good chance for him to stay at the club and it's very unlikely to see Saudi clubs bidding for 50 million euros now 
Any truth, though, uh, in the rumour of, of Balogun going to Chelsea? Look, at the moment, I think it's just something that is coming out of the conversations Chelsea had with the agents of Balogun, who are the same agents of Romeo Lavia. So they had multiple conversations during the last couple of weeks. And it's normal to discuss about other players, to discuss also about opportunities. And following Balogun is a big opportunity in the market now. But at the moment, I'm not aware of any direct contact between Chelsea and Arsenal, of any bid yet. So at the moment, it was just a normal conversations with the agents, but not something concrete like a proper negotiation. So I would not call it a deal ongoing at the moment between Chelsea and Arsenal or player side at Chelsea. But will Chelsea move for a striker? I think there is a chance. Uh, they want at least one more offensive player. Let's see if it's going to be two or one, but they are still considering their, their options. They don't want to panic after the game with West Ham. Of course, it was an unlucky game, but they don't want to panic. They know the next one is going to be with Luton at home, so probably the feeling is going to be completely different, at least. This is what they hope. And uh, the idea is to add one more player. They wanted Olise. We know that deal was uh, was really crazy and, and didn't happen. So this is why Chelsea are looking for one more creative player in that position. So I think they could go for that kind of player who can play as number 10, who can play as a winger. So this is the idea. This is the profile. For example, they asked the information last week for Bradley Barcola from Olympique Lyon. This is a fantastic talent. But Paris Saint-Germain are the favourites because they have an agreement on player side since a long time. It was June when they started negotiations. So they remain favourites on Barcola. But that is the kind of player who can be creative, who can bring uh, something different in attacking positions, waiting for Christopher Kunku to return. And then let's see if they will, will go also for a centre striker. This is something still being discussed internally, but not guaranteed yet. Uh, and do you think uh, Romelu Lukaku will join Juve eventually, or he will now have to set to, uh, head to Saudi? Look, at the moment for Juventus to bid 40 million euros, which is what Chelsea want to sell Romelu Lukaku, uh, in this moment for Juventus is almost impossible. The only way for Juventus to make it happen is if they sell Dujan Vlaovic. They tried at the beginning of July and the beginning of August with Chelsea to discuss this what deal with Romelu Lukaku and Dujan Vlaovic. The outswell for Chelsea in July was a no. In August was, let's have a conversation, but they were never that convinced about the swap deal. And also Juventus asked for 40 million euros as part of the deal. So Lukaku plus 40 million euros to sell Dujan Vlaovic. For Chelsea, those conditions are absolutely not okay. So this is why the deal is in total standby between Chelsea and Juventus. But the only way for Juventus to sign Lukaku at the end of the transfer window is to sell Vlaovic. And at the moment, Vlaovic is scoring goals because yesterday scored for Juventus. And also, there are no concrete negotiations. I think maybe the only option was Bayern in case the hurricane deal was going to collapse, but Kane is at Munich, so uh, nothing is going to happen with Bayern. And I think um, for Vlaovic, it's complicated to find a solution in 10 days. OK, let's move on to, to Amrabat. We know Manchester United would were potentially in now. Were a Liverpool in this race as well or not? Look, the only thing happened with Liverpool was last week, before signing Gendo, Liverpool had a contact uh, with the camp of Sofia Amrabat to ask for information. So how much would cost the player on Fiorentina's side, uh, terms of the contract. So they discussed all the conditions of the deal and it was a good conversation. But then internally, uh, Liverpool, they decided to invest that money on Gendo for multiple reasons. So I think from what I'm hearing at the moment, they are not in contact with Fiorentina anymore and with player side anymore. So I don't see Amrabat joining Liverpool. That was a possibility considered for 24 hours, but Amrabat remains in Manchester United list. Has always been appreciated by Atletico Madrid, and we have to mention that because it's always been in the list at Atletico Madrid, but was simply too expensive for them. And so let's see what happens for Amrabat. I still think that he has a very good chance to leave the club in these final days of the window, but not for Liverpool, I think. OK, uh, what about Spurs? It didn't seem they missed Harry Kane at the weekend, but are they going to replace him? 
they are discussing about that, you know. Uh, I think Ange Postecoglou has been very, uh, very clear on that in the recent press conferences he had, in the recent interviews. He always said, we will go for that. But first of all, we have to sell players because, okay, Kane, but uh, it's true that Tottenham have too many players also in different positions, too many centre-back, too many players who are not part of the project. So it's crucial for them now to sell players and to clean the squad as soon as possible. Then for the new striker, it's something that they are considering. Uh, I saw some rumours about signing two strikers. No, I think they will sign one if they get the right opportunity. One of the players they're following is Gift Orban, this talented striker from uh, Gank. They had positive conversations on player side, but never sent any bid. So Tottenham are informed on the conditions of the deal. Let's see if they will decide to proceed with a proper negotiation or not. At the moment, not yet. And then there could be some opportunity last minute for uh, for Tottenham. Another player that they've been tracking for a long time is Jonathan David, but it's very expensive. For Jonathan David, it's something around 60 million euros for uh, for Lille, especially at the end of the window when it's not going to be easy to replace a player like Jonathan David. So let's see. I think it could be a domino, but at the moment it's not started yet for Tottenham. It looks like there's still some work for Manchester City to do in the transfer window. What about uh, Jeremy Doku? Is it the chance that he may come over from France? Yeah, I think there is a good chance. It's not a done deal yet, but the conversations are advancing well. Uh, in the morning, City had a new contact with uh, Ren discussing a verbal proposal. So it was not a formal bid, but a verbal proposal for something around 55, 60 million euros package. So including some add-ons, they're also discussing payment terms. So it's not an easy conversation because Doku is an important player for Ren, but the conversation was positive in the morning. So I think for Doku, there is a good chance. There is competition because it's true that West Ham are in love with Jeremy Doku, so they're trying every way to approach the player. But of course, when you have Manchester City in the race, it's very complicated. So I see City as favourites and advancing in this deal for uh, for Jeremy Doku. And what about uh, Pakita to, to Manchester City? If you're talking Look, about West moment, Ham, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, at the moment the deal is, is off. So at the moment there are no more, no more conversations between a uh, player side and, uh, and City and same between clubs. Then let's see how this investigation will go, if uh, it will change the, the story in the coming days. Uh, we will see. But at the moment, City are focusing on Jeremy Doku. That Paqueta deal was very advanced, honestly, on club side and on player side. So it was on the right way. Then the story of the investigation changed the process of the of the negotiation. So let's see what happens on that story. But at the moment, City are focusing on, on Doku and on different players. And, and finally, Man City expect to let Sir Cancelo go to, to Barcelona after that sort of falling out with Pep. Yeah, I think it will happen. Uh, it's something that was very close in January. Then the deal collapsed because of the financial fair play situation at Barcelona. And so Man City decided to accept the bid from Bayern. But the player wanted Barcelona already in January. The player wants Barcelona now. So uh, he really hopes to make this deal happen. But what I'm hearing from my sources is this deal will happen. Let's see if it's going to be this week or next week. But Cancelo to Barca will happen. The indication is very clear. After they sold Usman Dembele, they decided to invest part of that money on Joao Cancelo. It's going to be a loan deal with a buy option clause. So this is going to be the agreement with Manchester City. Basically, what they're discussing is how much in the loan fee, how much in the buy option, uh, how to cover the salary. So it's technical points. But when all sides want the same thing, because City want to sell Cancelo, this is the reality. Uh, and Cancelo wants to go. And obviously, Barca want to sign him. I think it's just a matter of time. And Xavi is a very big fan of Cancelo. Xavi is really pushing to have Cancelo before any other player this summer. So I think there is a very good chance to see this deal happening in the coming days. As ever, Fabrizio, thank you very much indeed. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you as always. That's Fabrizio giving us all the uh, latest news from the transfer market. I, I think what's interesting is that as far as Timber is concerned, they will need a replacement. We still don't know how long he'll be out for, James. 
Um, but they will need somebody to cover what was one of their crucial signings of the uh, summer. Yeah, well, my understanding as well is it's a seven-month absence that is kind of what, is what's been penciled in. So when you kind of play that out, you're talking April, May before you see him again. Yeah. Um, and even then, you know, it's not going to be Timber at the peak of his powers. So I certainly think they will look look at the market and that's what Arteta indicated. However, you know, they are very conscious that players like Timber will 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 be back. They've got Jakub Kivior, Takahiro Tomiyasu. At the moment, they've still got players like Kieran Tierney and Nuno Tavares as well that they need to move on. So it, it, it's a curious experience for Arsenal now where they have an awful lot of numbers, but because of their lofty aspirations, you kind of can't help but want a little bit more. I think the same is true in attack as well, where Bukayo Saka is one of the best forwards in the Premier League already, firmly established, um, and you want to make the most of him and play him every minute, but you know you can't. And there's a real challenge there of wanting someone that can put pressure on him and that can come in and, and play the games that he can't because you don't really want him to play 60 games a season in spite of what Arteta has previously said. Um, but how do you kind of go and recruit that sort of player? I thought what was really smart about the Timber deal was he came in and had that attitude of, I'm taking the starting role. Um, Arteta was blown away with him and it looked like he'd already overhauled Zinchenko, who of course was injured for the Forest game. But I think, you know, 45 minutes through that game, I think, that, you know, those of us in the press box were saying, well, you know, I'm not sure Zinchenko comes back in. You've seen the same thing with Trossard as well. When Arsenal have bought these depth options, they've bought depth options that are really intent on stealing a starting role. Same particularly with David Raya. And there's something about the way that Arsenal pitch this uh, and Arteta pitches this to potential new signings because David Raya was made the exact same offer by Bayern Munich, who actually, you know, whilst they have Manuel Neuer in the squad, really have a number one goalkeeper at the moment because Neuer's injured. He wasn't sold by that promise, but competing with Aaron Ramsdale, an England international, hugely popular in the dressing room and among the fan base, he was he couldn't he couldn't come quick enough, and he was you know making playing to Bayern Munich. The, the reason that Bayern Munich backed out wasn't because Brentford didn't reject a bid; it was because they were told David Raya wants Arsenal, and um, that's quite a good place to be in when you're going into the transfer market to try and find someone, even if it's just to cover. Timber's injury for a year, whether it's a loan or a veteran, it's a, it's quite a strange experience when Arsenal have been so used to missing out on star players that they can uh, now convince they can effectively steal everyone Bayern Munich once because it wasn't just uh, Raya, it was Timber, it was Rice, it was Havertz. It's a it's a great experience that almost certainly means they would draw Bayern in the uh, group stages or the round of sixteen uh, and lose. <laughs> yeah. James, I just wonder. If you can talk about the start to the season for Arsenal, you watched them against Nottingham Forest. It was a bit of a grind. And the reason why I want your perspective on the opening few games is because when I think back to last season, Arsenal got off to a flyer. I think the only game that they lost before the mid-season break was that 3-1 defeat away at Manchester United. But those opening five games last season, on paper at least, I know nothing's easy in the Premier League, were not necessarily that challenging. It was a away win at Palace to start off the season. I think they beat my side Leicester. There was a win over Bournemouth and then they got a couple of home wins over Fulham and Aston Villa from memory. This season, I look at the fixtures. Crystal Palace is coming up at the time of recording this evening. Then there's another tough London derby against Fulham. And from there, between now and I think it's either 
late October or early November, they've got to go Manchester United. They've got to play a North London derby against Spurs. They've got to go away at Chelsea. They've got to go home to Manchester City. They've got to go away at Newcastle, I think, even all before early November. So it feels like if Arsenal are going to lead from the front this season and get a lead over Manchester City, they're going to have to win some big, big games early. Yeah, I mean, if if they're leading from the front this season, particularly considering City's fixture list is quite favourable before they they meet in early October, something has gone magnificently right. Although it did amuse me, Ben, that you were sort of picking out Manchester United as one of the difficult games there, because (laughs) even though they lost last season... um, those of us that have seen Manchester Manchester United through the first two games of this season might think that's the uh, that's the gimme three points in that run of games. Um, I'm sure it won't be um, because it's Arsenal Man United. But you, you're right, and look, yeah, you know, I think if you kind of sketch out this season and you talk about how how does Arsenal title challenge materialise, it doesn't feel like it's going to be one where they do the same thing they did last season, get out in front. Uh, and trying to set the pace from that. I don't know whether it helps them. I'm sure they don't really know whether it helps them either. But it, if they're going to be in a title race, I, I have a feeling it will be more about being snapping on City's heels rather than um, leading from the front. And the, the big thing to say is, last season, if they'd beaten Man City home and away, and they had moments certainly in the home game, they'd have won the title. And I think what they're going to absolutely have to do is not, give City six points and drop six points of their own? Can they split those games against City or even get four, six points? Then then they've got a chance. And I think the Community Shield will help a bit, but it is that game in October that, that could really define the season. But that's what Rude Hullett was saying a couple of weeks ago. It's it's easy easier to chase, isn't it? Rather than be hunted down, especially if you're you're not used to being on top and, and dominating as they were. Um, and you wonder whether that will come into it and and with this run of fixtures as as we all know that maybe it'll benefit Arsenal to be trying to chase City and it, the the season may be shaped a little bit better for them who knows and um, Ben contract situations on some of the uh, the key players um, the likes of Saliba and Saka and Martinelli contract renewals for them Yeah, I mean, the renewals that Arsenal have done for all of those players are more important than any of the additions that they've brought in. Of course, Declan Rice will glean a lot of the That was the implication, yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's just strengthening them for some time. Yeah, and I think this was Arsenal's aim and some contracts were easier than others. I think James asked a question to Martinelli a few months back and he basically responded, just hand me the pen and I'll sign. So clearly that one was a bit more routine than the others. I think with Saka, he was always untouchable in the short term, although there was some interest from Manchester City. There still is, which is normal because you're tracking players with a view to three to five windows ahead, but Arsenal were never going to sell Saka Saliba was maybe the most complicated one because he'd returned from a loan spell in France with Marseille. He'd enjoyed his time there. And I don't think that he immediately knew what the pathways were at Arsenal whilst he was still on loan. And Mikel Arteta has said that when Saliba 
returned. He actually left him to his own devices because he wanted to watch from afar how he responded. Then they had the conversation. Then he was thrown directly into the starting lineup and the rest, of course, is history. But when you have a player that breaks onto the scene with Arsenal, having had that loan spell, enjoyed his time in France, there was some interest from PSG. Saliba was only born about six kilometres from the centre of Paris. It was always going to take a little bit of time to create the package. But Arsenal were calm about all of their renewals. And this is what good project management is all about. Not only finding a new star, which excites the fan base, but making sure that you've got the core. And the advantage of that core is obviously they've been through the wobble. They've been through the disappointment of last season. Can they bounce back and learn from it? And I think the other thing about a lot of the contract renewals, with the exception of Ramsdale, we don't yet know whether he's going to end up being the number one or there's going to be some oscillation there. But a lot of these other players contributed. We know what Saliba did. He even chipped in with a few goals at the other end. And many of the other names were all in or close to double figures. And Arsenal have got this range of players now. Havertz might be one of them even coming in. Trossard could be another one who are all capable of, in theory, getting 10 goals, 10 assists or some kind of balance, whatever your breakdown is around those 20 goal contributions. And when you've got four or five players like that, that are young, that are hungry, that are confident, that are versatile, that are fluid, that get each other and can contribute with goals and assists, then it alleviates the pressure from any one player. So we always used to look at Spurs and even potentially Arsenal historically with a sort of Thierry Henry style player in their side, even Ian Wright before that, and say there's a burden on one player for output. Right now I look at Arsenal and I think that there's goals and assists everywhere. There's clean sheets when everyone's fit and playing well too. So this is why there's no reason why they can't excel and try and go toe-to-toe with Manchester City. One thing to add on the, the contract front as well, and Ben is right, it's, it's uniformly great news to have all these fantastic young players signed up. But one of the competitive advantages that Arsenal had on the way back up under Mikel Arteta was they had a squad that was by top six standards and by top European standards, fairly cheap to run. You know, you're getting a huge production from Bakayo Saka for under £100,000 a week. Um, there was one thing that stood out when I spoke to Josh Kroenke in 2019. One thing that you could tell visibly annoyed him, uh, the, the son of the owner, Sam Kroenke, was that um, he was running a uh, Europa League squad on a Champions League wage bill. And, you know, last season, Arsenal had a Champions League squad on a Europa League wage bill. That has uh, That's changed quite rapidly. You know, Declan Rice, Kai Havertz have got big new deals. Bakayo Saka has been paid a wage commensurate with his talent. Um, and it might still be an underpay if he's on the right trajectory. But, you know, the competitive advantage that allowed Arsenal to, to spend big and, you know, the space on the wage bill, it's not going to be quite as apparent, uh, especially once... You know, Martin Erdegaard will be the next to sign one. Ben White, I believe, will, will have they'll have conversations with him very soon if they haven't started already. So when you find, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but when you find all these young players, it's um, it becomes quite expensive to keep them up. Yeah. For a while. yeah well, I remember interviewing uh, Gabby Martinelli out in. Um... Where was I? I was out in Lisbon on on doing part of their European campaign last year. I've never seen a player quite so happy about where it's he was. You'll, you'll, Such you'll a have good guy. isn't he? You, I mean, you'll have interviewed him a lot more than I will. But I've never known someone who was so comfortable, so happy. He was like a kid. I mean, he is a kid, but he was just thinking, "I, I love this club. I'm so happy where I am." And I don't think it was probably a, a, as 
uh, Ben's alluded to, there was never any moment that he wasn't going to sign a new contract. But look at some of the other players that are clearly Arsenal have had to make space um, and players have gone. You know, the likes of Granit Xhaka has moved on and Declan Rice has come in. But what about perhaps, James, you know, the likes of um, Tierney, um, lots of eyes on Balogun, who who should have succeeded but hasn't succeeded at the Emirates. Yeah, I, I mean, Tierney, sort of a player out of time, really. And one of the things that intrigues me most about him is, you know, we know that Arsenal don't really have sort of space for that bombing down the wing left back anymore. Um, and whilst he's happy in North London, he wants to be a starter and that's totally understandable. So, you know, Arsenal are prepared to do business for him. But actually, for all the interest and all the reports and rumours, I don't believe that a serious offer to take him has has landed from uh, from anywhere. I, I believe there's interest, and Ben, I'm sure you can clarify this as well, but I believe there's interest from Saudi Arabia and I don't think that's where Tierney is in his career. Um, they've struggled to kind of move him on and I think they were someone, he was someone they looked at saying, 30, 40 million for him. He can fund a new signing. Um, Balogun, oh, there is stained, strong interest across the continent. We know Inter Milan would love to do something there, but the money isn't available. Monaco have, have made offers, but but so far to, to no avail. They are, I think, I think that almost with that one, Arsenal are in a slightly better position where they can wait. And again, Ben can speak to this. Um, the speculation about Chelsea, I think that would be greeted with open arms at the Emirates Stadium. I think there was a hope that, without wishing to be cruel to Todd Bowley and company, that that maybe some dumb money might appear late in the market. And um, (laughs) I think it would be fair to say that there are some people within football that think that they can get a very good deal out of selling to Chelsea. Yeah, I think the Balogun-Chelsea links have been formative, but nothing is formative at this stage of the window because if it was formative yesterday, it has to advance because we're at that stage of the window. Chelsea need to strengthen and Kunku is injured. is coming back from an ACL. So they've only really got Nicholas Jackson. And as a result, Balogun would be an inspired signing. As James says, Inter would love to sign the player as well. But Arsenal's valuation is high and Inter don't have too much money. They ran into this stumbling block before the fallout with Romelu Lukaku when they were still trying to sign him before he started speaking to Juventus. Inter had about 35, 40 million euros and Chelsea were looking for 45 million euros. And I think that with Balogun, Arsenal are fully entitled to stick to their price tag here because he scored 21 goals in Ligue 1 last season. And in this market, even if they want to find a solution for the player who said on record he doesn't want to do a loan deal. The number that Arsenal are looking at is seemingly 45, even 50 million. And Inter are trying for 35, perhaps maximum 40 million. So Chelsea would have the opportunity to come in and maybe do some business and maybe with other outgoings not have the worry about not being able to meet Arsenal's valuations. And much like Havertz, that could, on paper, be a deal that suits all parties. But ultimately, Arsenal are in a position where they've got a very in-form, red-hot talent that doesn't have space within their squad. So much like Chelsea selling Havertz to Arsenal, hindsight may show that it's a mistake selling Balogun, especially to a Premier League rival. And that might be a consideration for Arsenal as well. But I think Arsenal need to find a solution for Balogun in the course of the next 10 days or so. With Tierney, I was always under the understanding that 
if he had to fight for his place, the player was perfectly willing to do so, but he's lost out on game time and Saudi Arabia is there. I'm hesitant to say he won't go because I've seen so many U-turns of players, Sadio Mane, Bobby Firmino, Neymar, all originally indicated that they wanted to stay in Europe and ended up in Saudi Arabia. But it doesn't feel that there's a high likelihood of that one. The club that were the ones to watch were Newcastle, but they are just about to unveil Lewis Hall, which probably takes Kieran Tierney off the table. So the window could shut. And Tierney could very realistically, much like Thomas Partey, who was linked with Saudi Arabia, still end up at Arsenal. And then he'll have to realign or refocus and try and get more minutes. And I feel a bit sorry for Tierney, really, because I don't know what you think, James, but before Zinchenko came in and when he was playing regularly for Arsenal, I don't think he did too much wrong. Couldn't have imagined him being dropped. That's the joy of Arsenal. They've they've come so far that Players like Tierney, Emile Smith-Rowe, you thought they were the future and uh, now they're struggling to get 200 minutes a season. Well, thanks, James and Ben, for the moment. Let's bring in Jordan Jarrett-Bryan here. Now, Jordan is Channel 4 News' sports reporter and we have to be open here. He is a mad keen Arsenal fan. Jordan, thanks very much for joining us. Um, We are asking the question whether this can be the Gunners' year. Uh, What's your feeling? Um, I think it can be, and I think it will be. Uh, and I think it, I think it will be Arsenal's uh, year. And I'm probably a little bit biased in in my view there, um, <laughs> but I, I, I just think when all things are thrown into the pot and you weigh up who you know everyone's strengths and weaknesses, I just think Arsenal come out on top. I think Arsenal have a slightly stronger team than they did last year. I think Manchester City, at the point of recording this, is that the window is still open, but I think their their squad is slightly weaker than last year. I hope that Arsenal, and I think they will have learned from this, uh, the, the pain of uh, of last season and, and, and have learned how to deal with the pressure of dealing with a title race when it really matters. Everyone could talk about being a title race in February, but re- when it really matters with eight games to go, that's when it's really like, OK, now we have to win games rather than, you know, it'd be good to win this game. And I also think, and again, this has made me clutching here a little bit, Angus, I think when you are a team that wins everything available, I just think you you have to have lost a little bit percentage-wise of your hunger and drive. And I think that is part of, I think, behind the logic of not re-signing Ilkay Gundogan and, and Riyad Mahrez, and Riyad Mahrez go. I think Pep Guardiola wants players that may be a slightly lesser in quality, but have a hunger to want to win win, win big trophies. And, I, OK, Kovacic has won the Champions League before, but I just think once you reach the top of the mountain, I think it's human nature to just slightly, even without intending to, drop off a little bit in terms of drive and hunger. So I'm hoping that that happens for a lot of those players at Manchester City. <laughs> I hoping. think you're right. <laughs> I, I, yes, exactly. Uh, but I, I think when you talk to some of those players, and you talk to players in the past, even some of the United players who won the the treble in 99, they always said that coming back the next year and trying to defend all those titles was was very, very difficult indeed um, because it was such a momentous achievement. And maybe maybe City will feel the same that way. Um, I wonder what you think of some of the, the transfer business that um, Mikel Arteta has done. If we take some of them individually, Declan Rice. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so effectively you're substituting a Declan Rice uh, for a Granite Jacker. Um, an, uh, an upgrade for you? 
I think it's a net positive. I think there were definite things about definite qualities about Granit Xhaka that I think we have lost. I thought we saw last year he's, he grew into a goal scoring midfielder, um, a box to box player that I think was a massive asset. It took us like was it seven years to finally find the position for Granit Xhaka, and when we found it, <laughs> he moves on. Um, so I think that is a loss from midfield. However, I think what you gain with someone like Declan Rice is the physicality, um, is, is is youth. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a few years younger than than Granit Xhaka, and I think somebody and again, going back to that word hunger, that I think wants to go to a bigger club than where he was and really wants to stamp his presence on that particular team. So <clears throat> I think overall, it's proven to be an upgrade. I'm not as big a fan of Declan Rice. I think most people are. I think he's a very good player, but I, I've never really been... Of, of the mindset that he's one of these you know, best defensive midfielders in the world. I think he's got qualities. I think he can get better. And I think that's part of why he's been signed. I think the ceiling is higher for him than than it would have been keeping Brennan Jacker. But I'm still not as convinced about him as I think most people are. So you're actually disappointed in that signing? I wouldn't say disappointed. Um, I just think I just I think a lot of the talk and hype around Declan Rice, I'm just not quite there, Angus. I, I, I see a very good player. I don't see one of the best midfielders in the country. I see a player that I think in three years' time could potentially be that guy. But I just think the hyperbole around Declan Rice, um, I've, I've never seen it. And I'm one of those few people, Angus, that I believe that, that transfer fees do matter. I know they're kind of exorbitant and they're crazy and people say you can't relate the two, but I, I still believe you can get quality and some value for money in the market. Um, and I just think that with the, if, if by that logic, for me, I think we've double paid for, for Declan Rice. I, I think we've you know paid twice as much for Declan Rice. I think he's around the 50-60 bracket uh a um, million midfielder and I think um, we've paid twice that but you know we've got him in now we've got a brilliant player for sure um, and, and I'm glad we've got him I just don't rate him as highly as most people do well then that that's a huge question that you've you've forked out 70 odd million for for uh, Kai Havertz so so I'm <laughs> I, I'm gonna preempt this by you're gonna say what on earth are we doing no, I'm going to surprise you. I mean, <laughs> look, look, I'd be a complete liar if I sat here and said that during the summer, you know, um, Kai Havertz was a player that I identified as one that Arsenal must go out and sign and this is a player that's really good and he's had a great Chelsea career. I'd love to have him because I'd be a lie. He wasn't on my on my list of players that I thought would, would enhance Arsenal. But I think two things are happening here. One, I think Mikel Arteta has earned the right to be trusted in the transfer market. So on the face of it, do I see that logic behind the signing no I don't I, I'm with most people in that it for me is a little bit of a left field signing but the second thing is pre-Chelsea Kai Havertz was a very very good player I think he is a very very good player I just think he's been part of a team and a squad that's been a bit of a mess and hasn't quite worked out where to play him and has played him in a position where I don't think he's just he's very good um so I think uh, one I don't I'd be alive if I said he was a player that I wanted. But secondly, I think there's a good player in there and I trust Mikel Arteta to get the best out of him. So I'm hoping that Mikel Arteta has the last laugh come the end of the season and says, look, this is the guy I've signed and this is why I signed him. I think you're absolutely right, actually. I think it might be a steal. I think you might come back and look on this and suddenly think... It, this is a brilliant work in in the same way that you know actually Jesus has worked for you, um, Zinchenko has worked. That that he's seen something that he absolutely knows, and I agree that that Chelsea was a basket case 
um, effectively last year for for Havertz. And it he, he really difficult. Look, some some other names that didn't work there. And I think you put him in the right place and in the right environment and work in the right way and you've got a decent player. For, for sure. And, 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 and let's be honest as well, I think for the fee he's paid, he's not paid 15 million, 10 million for a guy that's arguably a gamble. It's a lot of money he's paid for a, for, for a guy that on the face of it is, is a bit of a weird one, but he will be judged and have to live and die by this transfer for me because of the fee that he's paid. But he obviously feels it's worth it. It's worth putting his neck on the block and he'll be judged at the end of the season. I think with Kai Havertz as well, there's a mistake of people looking at him and his numbers, judging him by, oh, how many goals and assists does he get? And he's an attacking player, yes. I think he's the sort of player that you don't judge him by his numbers. I think you judge him by his general impact on, on the attacks. So for me, he's the guy that may get... The pre-assist, as this new, new phrase is coming to yeah. the football lexicon, I, I think he's yeah. that guy, the David Silva. His numbers don't look particularly great. Iniesta's numbers were never particularly great, but they were hugely impactful on the attack. That, I think, is how you judge Kai Havertz this season. But my fear is he'll be judged by the eight goals he gets and the nine assists he gets. Oh, it's a lot of money for nine assists. And it's like, well, look at the goals we scored and look at who's pulling the strings in those particular attacks. And I'm hoping that Kai Havertz is, 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 the, is the conductor in a lot of that. I think one of the interesting signings is is bringing in David Raya for uh, a loan from Brentford and wonder whether you needed that. There's something clearly behind the scenes where he needs some competition uh, between the sticks. Well, I, I, I saw an interview um, or some quotes, sorry, from Steve Bold a few weeks ago, who says he spoke about when uh, David Seaman came in, when Arsenal currently had John Lukic, John Lukic, who was a very good keeper and doing very well for the club. And he said that George Graham basically said, well, why would you not want to bring in the best possible players to push all the players? It wasn't a case of I didn't trust John Lukic. John Lukic. It was a case of I had a chance to bring in another good goalkeeper, why not do that? So on that side of it, I get it. But you also hear from current goalkeepers, I've heard from the likes of Brad Feed, Brad Friedel, Peter Schmeichel speak recently and say, a goalkeeper is a very unique position. And it's, not, it's the one position where you can't have competition. The goalkeeper needs to know that he's the number one. And like Kai Havertz, Angus, this is a, a signing that I think is gonna he's going to live and die on. Let's focus alone. He doesn't have to sign him. But if this goes badly wrong, it's going to go really badly wrong because you're risking unsettling Aaron Ramsdale. And, you're, and you're, you're on the face of it, bringing in a problem you don't need to bring in. And I don't mean rare being the problem, but you're just basically casting doubt over your number one at a time where it doesn't need to be done. You're basically saying to your two goalkeepers, and the quotes from Mikel Arteta, I think, uh, you know, uh, articulate this. You guys, are, I've got no number ones. So you guys go out and impress me. My concern, Angus, is that you're going to then have Aaron Ramsdale doing things in a game to try and impress the goalkeeper, he, the manager, that he doesn't need to do. And that, for me, means small things like, you know, making passes he doesn't need to make just to impress the goalkeeper, making movements, doing things that you think you need to do because you think you're on trial. And the goalkeeper for me is the one position where I want to see you as little as possible. We're now in a position whereby I'm going to have to do as much as possible to be seen and to prove my worth. And that's a risk. So yes, bringing in another quality keeper on the face of it makes sense. You know, competition, and it rounds those out for four months, we're in trouble. We have a good goalkeeper now. 
But I just fear if it goes the other way, it's gonna it's gonna unsettle both goalkeepers because then if you take out Ramsdale, then Raya makes a mistake. Do you go back to Ramsdale then? What do you do then? And uh, and finally, when you uh, are reporting on Arsenal in your mm. job and or you're interviewing Mikel Arteta, is is there a sense of of calm? Is there a sense of really building towards something quite special at the Emirates? Um, I think there is. I think there is. There's been some glum years at the Emirates for, for Arsenal fans. And I think in Mikel Arteta, we see a manager that, and when he first got the job, he spoke about this, about bringing the fans closer together to the club. That was the first thing. There was a massive divide between the, the, the fan base and the club. We couldn't see where we were going. Arsenal in the in latter years, I thought, gave us some really, really horrible times. All right, a few FA Cups in there. But I think as a big club, you, you don't judge by Cups. Um, he brought the club and the fan base together. The style of football, I'm a big, big believer in big clubs don't just get to win trophies. You have to play a, a, a high brand of football as well um, when doing that. And I think there's a, there's a there's a belief now that the trajectory we're going on is, is back to the top. Now, you've got a small club at the top called Manchester City doing some small things, winning trebles, you know what I mean, at the moment. So it's not going to be easy. You've got Chelsea spending big money. You've got United spending big money. So it's not going to be easy. But I think there's at least a belief. I think that as an Arsenal fan is all we've wanted for the last five to ten years. Just give us belief that actually we're trying to get back to the top. We might we might come second again. We might come third. But my thing has always been Angus. Just at least prepare and plan and execute um, uh, the attempts to try and win. And I think for a long time we weren't even trying to win. We were just drifting and we were in the in the wind. So I think there is a belief and excitement amongst the fan base that this manager. Um, is and can uh, take Arsenal back to the promised land. Is second good enough? I think it depends what second looks like. I think if we're second by 17 points, then no. <laughs> if, if we're second and it's, you know, it's, it's another handful of points we've come second by and it's Manchester City that come top... I don't think there's much more you can really do about that. My thing, Angus, has always been from, from the start of the season. I don't think we should look at it from, from the perspective of we have to come about Manchester City. I think the target is 85 points. Get 85 points, put yourself in the mix with six or seven games to go and see where you are. 85 points puts you in the title race with a month to go. And then from there on in, can you deal with the pressure as akin to last year? I don't think the target should be, can we finish above Manchester City? I think the target is get 85 points in the bank and then see where you go from there. Because if you've got 85 points, you're going to come top three, worst case, probably top two. So get 85 points in the bank, take it to the last month of the season and then try to push City for first place. Jordan, brilliant. Well, I wish you and Arsenal fans the luck for the rest of the season. Hope Thank it's a decent much. title race. Cheers. That's Jordan Jarrett. Brian, uh, gents, rounding off this chat, we, we, we've talked about Man City as being obviously the main favourites and title contenders. Is there anyone else we should look at? If, if James, you say it's not Arsenal's year, then, you know, is, is there anyone else? I mean... I, I, I said at Liverpool before the season began, um, and yet, you know, seeing them kind of their midfield, what it looks like early on, I'm I'm fairly sceptical. Sceptical. Struggling there. Um, I mean, that's kind of, I'm approaching that much how Liverpool are pro- approaching their midfield. I know it's early <laughs> doors. We've only got two games to go on and, and some teams have had two tough games, but I don't, I don't see any teams other than Arsenal and, Am I going to say this? 
Brighton that could wow. really I could You're imagine I have it, haven't I? I, you have, I just, you've just you've slipped that one out and and we noticed. <laughs> I, I had them fifth, I think, in my pre-season table. And look, you don't want to get carried away. I certainly feel like they have shown a level that I haven't seen any of the other teams that have played to get. I haven't seen Arsenal, frankly, for a while show that level. And we've seen them obliterate some good teams at the back end of last season. So, you know, when everyone else is in, everyone else other than City and Ar- well, everyone else other than Arsenal almost feel like they're in transition. Brighton should, but they look at as good as ever. So um, I do. I, I think it will be City, bit of a gap, Arsenal, quite significant gap but then you know i'd love to i'd love it to be brighton so maybe i'm just going to talk it into existence <laughs> you keep going yeah you'll you'll we'll all start believing it if if i asked you this question though uh james it'll be and and maybe you can complete the sentence it'll be arsenal's season if erling Haaland misses 10 or more games I mean, suddenly then, you know, with De Bruyne out until maybe 2023 and we're seeing Laporte going, Cancelo going, you know, that's the, you can see the sort of, something emerging at City that probably won't lead to them losing the title, but might, you could imagine us in May coming back on here and saying, well, you know, the problem really was that they let so many players go, took too long to replace a lot of them um, and De Bruyne got injured and yes, maybe Haaland missed a dozen or so games and they just weren't the team they were. Um, yeah, I think that's, but, but when you have a player like Haaland in your team, it, it does paper over any cracks that might emerge this season. So yeah, I think, you know, Haaland is an example, but if City get unlucky with injuries and, and form, then something opens up for Arsenal. And I think Arsenal are the team it opens up for. Same to you, Ben. It, it, it'll be Arsenal season if... They finish in second place with 80 goals and 80 points. That's the target. And I know that that won't win you the Premier League, but let's not forget last season, neither Man City or Arsenal got 90 plus points. It was 89 to win the league. I think Manchester City will surpass 90. I think Arsenal will stay in the low 80s and that will be a very good season for them because my theory is that this is the season when the top 10 in the Premier League becomes like the top 10 in the championship and there's really very little wiggle room. And the reason for that is because Liverpool last season got 67 points. They are going to get more. Tottenham had a terrible season. They're going to get more than 60 points, in my opinion. Villa and Brighton are going to be there. I'll will that into existence for Brighton and for Villa as well, in the same way that James did. Chelsea are quite clearly going to get more than 44 points as well. So if all of these teams are getting seven to 10 points more that were underwhelming last season and Brighton and Villa are staying where they are, then it's going to take some points in likelihood off potentially Arsenal, maybe even Man City, certainly Manchester United and probably Newcastle as well. And then everything tightens up. So as a consequence, I think we're going to get several teams around that high 60s to mid 70s, which means that if Arsenal can be above that by six or seven points, again, 80 points, 80 goals, that for me will be a very effective season, but I still think that it will see them 10 points off the eventual champions, Manchester City. And I don't think that's 
underwhelming. I think if Arsenal last season had finished on 84 points with 88 goals, which I believe were their two tallies, but Manchester City had always led from the front, then Arsenal fans would be buzzing, even if they were never in touching distance of the title. And once again, if they can stay there or thereabouts, I don't think that's mediocre. I think if they can be comfortably in second place and above 80 points, then that will be project stability. And then over the course of the next season or two, and that's how long I think it will take to catch Manchester City, they can then start to make a push for the Premier League title. But I don't see it happening this season. So second for you, effectively, and second for you, James, and that and that's a good season. Well, maybe maybe Arsenal fans are just going to be have to be happy with with second place and actually being best of the rest is is success. And and that's what, what the about way they you, Angus? This season, yeah, I, I look, I can't see anyone toppling Man City. That that's the thing. I I just think until it, yes, as James says, if they lost some key players, Haaland being one of them. They've clearly lost De Bruyne. Interesting in the transfer market. They have lost some, you know, some key players um, that Peppers let go. And look, uh, who's not to say that that who he's brought in are, are, are not as good or will be better? Uh, difficult, but I, I think they're, they are an unstoppable force at the moment. And I uh, thoroughly expect them to, to win it. I think it'd be more exciting to, to see who comes third or fourth in the league. And I'd like to see the likes of Villa and Brighton taking a lot of points off the, the Tottenham's, the Man United's, uh, that sort of side. And so that there is a real mix between Newcastle, who might have a chance, Brighton, who might have a chance. Um, and Aston Villa, who unbelievably may have a chance, which you wouldn't have seen, you wouldn't have thought after week one, even though I didn't think they played that badly in their in their five one defeat, you know. So I, I think we could be in for quite a good season um, for for the minor places. But I see I see Manchester City um, leading the way probably from early on and not winning the treble, but certainly dominating the Premier League. James, if which I can is- ask you one more question sorry to cut across you angus just for balance just for the doomsday scenario that could materialize what happens if arsenal get knocked out of the champions league by not getting out their group and finish fifth or sixth in the premier league is there any pressure on Mikel Arteta in this modern premier league era or is his job still safe for the long term I think he would be he would he would survive that. Of course, context matters, you know. In that scenario, is that because every player's got injured, or is it because you know he's he, his tactics have been found out? Um, either way, I think there is such admiration at, at the club for Arteta. And I remember making the phone calls, asking the questions when Arsenal were nearer to the relegation zone uh, than the Champions League places in his, you know, around Christmas of his first full season. And even then, the backing was fulsome and not in the way that coaches are usually backed in the weeks before they get sacked. You knew that they weren't in the business of sacking Mikel Arteta. Of course, there would be pressure from the fan base, and we know how vituperative this particular fan base can be when things go wrong. But actually, I think he is, you know, one of the handful of um, Premier League managers that would 
would only leave this season of their own volition, I think. I think. Um, you never know in this league, do you? But oh. he is, he's managed upwards brilliantly. He is adored by the players. Um, so I, I think he could weather a bad season. But we're not expecting that because we have predicted otherwise. That is your football debrief. Uh, many thanks to our guests this week, James Bench and Jordan jarrett Bryan. As always, our thanks to Fabrizio Romano for dropping in. Remember, he will be here every week giving us his spin on all the big transfer dealings around the world. Ben, are you finally back home tomorrow? And next yes, week? Yes, I'll be in my bed. I will have my dog. I will have my <laughs> usual setup. So I'm looking forward to next week and back to normality and bring on the Premier League season and good luck to Arsenal. Yeah, and um, well, when you said doomsday, I, I sense there was a little bit of that Scottish twang that that you've left behind in your six weeks of travels. And when you go back, you'll be you'll be talking in your native tongue uh, when you're back up in Edinburgh. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll be back with your debrief next week. <laughs> <laughs>